what actually is chick lit? I've seen like the covers of chick lit books and I've read books that have been marketed as chick lit. There are two divisions of it, I think. One is the kind of celebrity behind the scenes. Career gal goes behind the scenes and shows how the rich and famous live, that kind of a book. And then the other one, the Bridget Jones diary model is single career gal worried about when she's going to meet her man, the right guy, neurotic and shopping and a lot of emoting and sort of (laughs) this style. It's really the oldest question in the book, the, the idea that, you know, you've got to meet the right guy to determine your future. Catherine Trueblood is a resident writer in the 2007 Jack Straw Writers Program. She is Associate Professor of English at Western Washington University. You're listening to her in discussion with program curator Matt Briggs. So I know lots of writers who are really excited by the mm-hmm. whole concept of chick lit. The idea is it really is a kind of cynical one. Suddenly there's a way of framing women's literature in a generic sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a shelf, there's reading lists. Mm-hmm. But but it sounds like that this comes then at a cost, pushing to the side of legitimate feminist work. I wrote um, that literary essay called Chicklet Meets Pricklet, which yeah. was published in Rain Taxi a couple years ago, after talking to the editor of a major metropolitan weekly. And I right. wanted to review kind of a, a roundup of Western women writers at that time, one of whom had been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. The other had been a New York Times notable book of the year. Uh, I can't remember the third was a pushcart or a Pulitzer or whatever. And his comment offhand was, we just did a Chicklet thing last week. So, no, I'm not interested. And that made me angry. Well, I don't have any problem with people wanting entertainment and diversion. And, you know, I read Bridget Jones' diary when I had a fever, and it was a great book to read when I had a fever. And so I don't have any problem with that. I look at uh, chiclet as a sub-genre of romance, really. But when uh, people see all of women's literature, particularly I worry about male editors deciding that women's literature, all of it, is this category. Catherine Trueblood's first novel, The Sperm Donor's Daughter, was released in 2000. Now you'll hear excerpts from her latest book, The Baby Lottery, published in 2007. This is recorded from her live reading at Jack Straw Productions. I believe this novel is the first literary fiction to seriously examine the personal politics of choice. I've written as authentically as I know how to about a group of women in their late 30s whose responses to a friend's abortion represent a wide range of values. That was my intention. Given the recent Supreme Court ruling, I think we really need to have conversations that move beyond the simple binary of pro-choice and anti-choice. To me, a novel is the only way to get at the truth of women's experience without being polarized by this political debate. My book describes five women, friends at college, who find their relationships strained when one of them decides to have an abortion after delaying the decision in the hopes that her husband would change his mind. And so it's a a second trimester abortion. The novel records the voices of her four friends as they try to bridge this gap between what they think they should feel and what they actually do feel. Tazi groans when she reads that the expressway lanes are closed. She's got 15 minutes to make it back to the office. Interstate 5 is more like a flooded river than a highway. Log booms, modular houses, and boats float by on truck beds, stories above her Toyota. If Tazi pulls out to pass a truck, 
she can count on some zippy little car cutting into the 20-foot space between them just to show her how it's done. Forget it. She'll plug along and think. Tazi knows other women would expect her to be mortified by Charlotte's abortion. Certainly it would fit in with the way the women at work see her. Poor Tazi, who doesn't have any kids. As if having kids were the only way to achieve maturity or happiness. Never mind that the other women are all secretaries and Tazi is the only female executive. Well, the only one who has lasted, anyway. Her co-workers keep reminding her that there is still time to get married and have a baby if she gets a move on. Look, she finally said, maybe I don't want any kids. I wiped my brother's butts for years and made their macaroni, and I'm done. Actually, she only feels that way some of the time, but she is definitely not one of these women who falls apart every time she sees some drooling baby. She'll be fine either way. Some women can't imagine their lives without children. Really, who can account for the varying degrees of desire in that regard? Any more than one can having a sweet tooth. Tazi knows it's callous of her, but she can't help it. The others are getting all worked up about the age of the fetus. Okay, so it's second trimester. The procedure is still legal. She pictures the fetus as a polywog. Yes, buggy eyes but gelatinous, unable to leave the water. She couldn't kill a frog, capable of sitting on a rock and croaking at her. But as a child, she caught a polywog or two and left them to dry in the sun. She doesn't remember any bones. She realizes this may be a lot of hooey, a means of justification. But the world plays upon our sympathies all the time. Plays tricks, too. Tazi remembers the time a belt in her refrigerator needed replacing, and the big white box emitted diminutive squeaks. It sounded like a batch of baby hamsters. When the repairman came in and opened his toolbox, she had sudden protective urges to shout, to kick his toolbox away, to wrest the wrench from his hands. Anyway, pollywogs. That's how she got through her abortion, by picturing them. It wasn't so bad, and the benefits were enormous. Can one talk about that? Tazi wonders, the benefits of an abortion? And she doesn't just mean not having to raise the child. She's not sure how to explain this, but afterwards she felt like she had stepped into the river of time, like she had joined womankind. She thought about every woman before her who had ever wanted a baby or not wanted a baby, or grieved a baby, or wished a baby away, or wished it away and then grieved it. She felt for the first time that she belonged to women in a special way, as though they were in a place and time where not one of them would compare themselves to her, nor she to them, and not one of them would compare their pain to hers, nor hers to theirs. And they would none of them set about the task of ranking pain, least to worst, only nod with knowing looks. The abortion also helped Tazi get away from Cordy. Really, it was her coming of age. Cordy and Tazi fought all the time about basic, basic stuff. He'd call her bourgeois and make fun of her magazine subscriptions. 
but it was always her nice, clean house he wanted to spend the night in. She belittled him for splurging when he had money, for living on lentils in between. But she went to him for romance, because he could be counted on for the kind of impracticality she needed. Making love in an airport utility closet, hoisting her on to the warm dishwasher, faxing her obscenities in pig Latin to the office. She swore off and on him for months. In between, she'd wonder if he was with someone else. She lost 15 pounds. The desperation diet. The unhappier she was, the more desirable it made her. When she called to tell him she was pregnant, a cool little voice answered the phone. There was only one thing to do. After the abortion, she felt absolutely still, maybe an awareness of that newly empty place inside her. Sure, she felt loss, but it was good, clean loss, not drama, not experimentation with limits, not how far you'll go to manipulate someone else. Sitting there in that crinkly paper dress, she knew she didn't want to be with Cordy ever again. It was apparent to her. Life deals out enough suffering as it is. You don't need to go around making it yourself all the time. That's when she cut it off with Cordy, and she realized how much work any kind of satisfaction is. You can always complain about someone else making you miserable. But satisfaction, you've got to build. She didn't know that before the abortion. She was waiting for someone to make her happy. Then she realized that happiness had always eluded her. But satisfaction, she understood. And I'm going to read one last segment. This is Virginia, and uh, she is a state college professor, like me. (laughs) But not like me, of course. All right. The truth is... Virginia is still recovering from a full-blown crush on one of her students. It has never happened to her before. She can honestly say that, not in ten years of teaching. But suddenly, she feels a profound attraction. She isn't scooping babies out of cradles here. This fellow is 35 if he's a day. Though certainly she has had some opportunities with the downy-cheeked ones. No, this guy is your typical atypical cowboy of the sea who strides into her office trailing a whole interesting life. Fisherman, charter captain, bartender, legal assistant, corrections officer. If he'd been born in Jack London's day, his resume would have included stevedore, hod carrier, drover, longshoreman, and the like. Jack is what she calls him, and to herself, Jack of Hearts. While everyone around him seems to get through the days on little Bunsen burners, Jack stokes a bonfire day and night. He's got three part-time jobs or something ridiculous, but still manages to read the homework many times before class and make searingly astute comments. He's also irreverent in a way that few of the 20-year-olds understand. And Virginia has to keep herself from falling into private jokes with him in front of the class. The man lets her know she's alive. Their little flirtation goes on for some months. 
Jack comes to her office regularly. She loans him books. At the end of the quarter, he writes her a thank you note for the class. Nice, complimentary, full of well-placed innuendo. I completely enjoy you and your class. Which she disagrees with, of course. Virginia's idea of his completely enjoying her is a variety of positions, none of which have to do with the rank and file of faculty. He's taken to greeting her with the words, Hey, lady, which is, she knows, hopelessly 70s. But it also says something sweet about romantic notions she still responds to. When Led Zeppelin could write lyrics that began, Hey, lady, you got the love I need. How many times did she drop the needle back at the beginning of that song when she was 12? Rock and roll meets courtly love. Briefly, Virginia is foolish enough to believe she has some sort of hold on Jack, a charismatic combination of age, intellectual prowess, beauty, and vitality, until she runs into him in the hallway two weeks into the winter quarter. He hasn't been to visit her yet, and she finds herself making cloying comments about books of hers in his possession, and that discussion about graduate school they need to have, and any other shameless entanglement she can remind him of. He says, maybe I'll come by later. Maybe? Has she ever heard him use the word before? She goes back to her office and sits. She has never known what it felt like to be an older person nursing an infatuation for a younger one. Only five years for Crimini's sake. But it's not chronological age alone. It's the shift to family life and all its attendant worry. Scraps of a Carl Sandburg poem come to her like bits of far-off music. I could love you as branches in the wind Brandish petals, as dry roots, love rain. Love is a fool star. The overbearing steam heat of her office brings out the smell of cleaning fluid in her jacket. The red light on her phone blinks like the Cyclops' eye. Virginia fishes around in the back of her desk drawer and finds the picture of her husband she threw back there amid the stray tea bags and tacks and busted-up chalk. He is standing on the beach in Oregon, Milo on one hip and a pastel baby bag knocking against the other. There's a nacre sheen to Finley's skin, a roundness to his jaw that is no longer there. In his expression, the unabashed desire to be a good father. Virginia's sigh is a substitution for words she can no longer find. Was it only five years ago that they took that trip? Dear battered Finn, she thinks, you've been my scapegoat. Because when I look into your face, I can't reject my own aging. Thank you very much. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2007 curator of this program is Matt Briggs. 
Music by James Knapp and recorded through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Arts Program's manager is Van Deep. Narrator is Michelle Kazak. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture, King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>